welcome to the Evoke Ag podcast, the show where we take a look at the ag tech and food innovations changing the future of farming. Hello and welcome to the Evoke Ag podcast. I'm your host, Steve Onham. This week, we bring you a podcast from Grow Ag, the gateway to Australia's agri-food and innovation system showcasing world-leading agricultural research, unique technologies and commercialisation opportunities online in one easy-to-use location. We learn about Western Australia's famed Marin crayfish and how it could become the next global food sensation. Aquatic AI, an aquaculture tech startup, is leading this charge with a fully automated vertical aquaculture system to ensure a consistent supply at scale of this tasty crustacean for premium export markets in collaboration with the University of Western Australia. With the support of AgriFutures Australia's Emerging Industries Program, Andrew Walker and Michael Storey, the co-founders of Aquatic AI, are seeking commercial investors to help research and develop a scaled aquaculture supply chain for Marin to rival the iconic WA rock lobster industry. Here our GrowAg contributor Judy Kennedy learns more about the robotic technology and the nutritionally balanced diet developed to optimise taste and size of the famed Marin crayfish when grown in an intensive system. Aquatic AI's research will not only help produce seafood with a small environmental footprint, but serves to benefit all Marin farmers and aquaculture more broadly. Firstly, to the market potential. Welcome to Michael Storey and Andrew Walker. Uh, Andrew, let's start with you. Could you firstly describe the marron and its flavour for me and tell me why is it a challenging food to produce consistently? I think um, your grandfather was in the Marin Growers Association in WA. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, firstly, I'd say the marron is just absolute quintessential WA fine dining. Um it's, a, it's a, one of our most delicious, best-kept secrets. Um, so whenever you have uh, chefs come visit us in the, the southwest of Australia, they're going to have a lot of good, good experiences, but they always come away and they talk about, well, fine wine, uh, truffles, and marron. Um, they're this sweet, firm, delicious uh, seafood, beautiful texture, carries flavour really well. Um, actually, one of the things that chefs love is that it does carry flavour, so they're able to use it to develop their own signature dishes, as well as it being delicious by itself. Uh, I personally prefer it just with a bread roll and butter. It's that good. And yeah, gr- growing marin definitely runs in my veins. Uh, my, my old man grew marin as a kid on his property in Byford. My granddad on my mum's side was in the Marin Growers Association. So, yeah, uh, my, my dad's still one of our most uh, vocal, passionate supporters in this, in this endeavour. In terms of growing them, I mean, one of, the, one of the biggest challenges of growing Marin at scale is that they are uh, not the greatest of neighbours for each other. Um, Marin tend to uh, kill each other off if they're grown too densely. So if you, if you have a pond full of Marin, if you try and add more Marin in, you don't necessarily get more Marin out. Um, and so scaling up can be a real challenge in a, in a more traditional pond-based farming approach. Yes, and it has been a traditional approach pretty much until, until you two have come along, hasn't it? Because the experience of farmers in Australia growing marron has been in outdoor ponds and, and often complementary to farming, to cropping 
and livestock growing. And could you just explain what they look like too? You mentioned that they can be a little aggressive towards each other. We're talking about bottom dwellers here, aren't we? And and they look like crayfish with, with big claws, a bit like lobster. Yeah, exactly. It's like a freshwater crayfish, so sort of like a yabby, but one of the biggest freshwater species in the world. So a, a large yabby or a, a little bit like a, an ocean-dwelling lobster or a Moreton Bay bug. Is that is that the best way to describe them, Michael? Yeah, I guess remember the WA rock lobster doesn't have claws, so it's a slightly different. But I mean, to the oh right, the, that's that's true. They've got the nice looking nice looking claws, which is a bit more like the American lobster, I guess. Mm. And you can get them in a range of colours, from kind of cobalt blue to brown to jet black. Mm. Oh, yeah, exactly. Okay. We've got the uh, you see some pictures of the just just a stunning cobalt blue, and we've actually seen, um, especially during COVID, the number of people wanting to keep them as um, as decorative uh, animals has increased around the world as well. I see. Uh, to come back to here, though, they're growing in outdoor ponds, I understand. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, when you talk about marin, uh, a lot of West Australians will kind of get glassy-eyed. There's a big folklore around them. Um, and a lot of the industry has been, you know, part – part commercial and part lifestyle with people adding marin ponds to a farm or extending a family farming operation with marin because they're down in the right area, et cetera. Um, and so the two main types of part farming really are extensive farming where they just have a, a large dam that they're able to grow marin in without much management or semi-intensive ponds where they've got a clay pond about a 1,000 square metres and trying to use good farming practices to manage that that pond as well as they can and get the highest yield possible um and as i said before marin aren't great neighbors to each other so if you try and put more in a pond you don't necessarily get increased yield so farming is really limited in density and therefore it becomes quite water intensive quite land intensive quite labor intensive um, and that makes it difficult to get really large especially when the the water and the land that you need is also water and land that could be used for a whole lot of farming operations. I mean, you're competing with avocado and all sorts of other – and vineyards who are competing with other expensive crops. Exactly. When we, we chatted with a, with a marin farmer um, as we were getting started on this who was lamenting having too many marin farms and not, an avo- not enough avocado trees when the price of avocado was spiking. <laughs> and so you go – yeah, I can actually really understand that when you've got competing space and competing requirements. I'd imagine they'd go nicely together, avocado and a nice slice of um, marin in a bread roll. Absolutely. One, one thing you'll, uh, you'll find when you start paying more attention to this sort of area of the business is uh, you, you start going, oh, well, what can I do with a marin? And as soon as you Google it, you'll, you'll find things like butter poached marin and avocado <laughs> and truffle and you go oh my god it's time for it's is it never time for a meal yet do we need to do some work or is it you know <laughs> for sure um michael where then would your company aquatic ai like to see the marin industry because I've, I've i've read the statistics that we're producing 80 tons of marin a year and 60 tons of that is from western australia so what is the ideal export size and where would you think you'd be selling Marin once you are producing it consistently? Yeah, I mean, we see WA Rock Lobster as a such an iconic industry and it's half a billion dollars and we don't see any reason why Marin can't compete with it on, a, on the global seafood stage. In terms of the actual size of the Marin, different markets have different requirements. The Chinese like a big centrepiece for their banquets, but I don't think that'll be our main focus. We're really keen on the fine dining. So you might have, you know, half a hundred gram marin for a 
degustation dish or a full 150 gram marin for a main course. There's a bit of a joke that the locals around here like their marin big enough that you can put a saddle on them and ride them down to the shops. <laughs> the reality is their their flesh um, and taste starts to diminish uh, as they grow that sort of size and so does their growth rates. And with these tapering growth rates, it obviously affects the profitability for the business because they're basically just growing slower uh, but eating more. So we've done some pretty hectic modeling to try and optimize the sales size. But this will continue to evolve as our Gen X program kicks in and other cost drivers are reduced. So we really don't know at the moment what our perfect size to export will be. There are other things to consider, like market differentiation with other species. Marin is the largest commercially available crayfish. So we really want to play into those strengths and we don't want to be competing in the size range of yabbies, red claw and prawns. Well, Andrew, you're both engineers. You're into robotics and AI. You're not fish farmers. Can you explain the vertical stack technology that you're planning to use? Is this something that's similar to the vertical growing of greens that we've seen by Bowery in the US or in Queensland, for instance? Yeah, sure. I mean, one thing to to say is that when we first started looking at this, we, we were quite conscious that we were engineers and tech background rather than farmers. And so we've spent a long time talking to uh, farmers and people with a lot more biological skills than us to make sure that we actually, you know, are on the right track. Um, but yeah, growing growing food to feed ten billion people is is one of the big global challenges that people talk about. And a result of that is that you see huge amount of capital going into new farming technologies. And as you mentioned, vertical farming is seen by a lot of people as a as a key piece of that puzzle. Um, and we've we've admired some of those companies like Bowery in the in the US that have had you know a billion dollars plus put into them. Um, and for the most part, so far, those vertical farms have focused on growing leafy greens. Um, and the idea is they grow in vertical stacks rather than horizontally. And the big advantages there is you can have far higher yield per square meter. Um, the farms are all indoors, which means you can fully control and optimize the environmental conditions. You can be a lot more water um, water efficient uh, and you avoid all of the risks of exposure to the elements, uh, so climate change, pests, etc. cetera. Um, and once it's in that kind of controlled environment, you'll see these companies use a lot of high-tech automation, robotics, uh, data science, AI, all of those things that are really coming to the, the, the forefront of the industry. Um, and from our perspective, uh, that our plants have a lot in common with those parts. Um, in the case of Marin, um, where you know, traditional intensive or semi-intensive farms and ponds have three to four Marin per square meter, uh, in our lab, we're, at, we're already at 100 Marin plus per square meter, and we see that growing to 1,000 Marin per square meter. Um, but we definitely see ourselves using a lot of the, the same ideas in terms of data collection in terms of automation you can imagine if you've got marinin tanks and controlled environments inside with robots doing a lot of the work then we know a huge amount about what their conditions were what the inputs were how happy the marin is uh, how healthy the marin is and in doing so we should get improved growth rates improved taste um, and good conditions for an animal to live in that's quite a challenge but uh, as you say you've already proven that it's possible on a small scale um have you i understand you've been growing marin in this system for 12 months so i'd imagine that nutrition is critical in converting that into good growth rates 
Yeah, certainly the um, the starting point for this whole business was definitely uh, rather than going, what does this industry look like? Can we make it? In, can we improve it? Can we do a little bit better? It was definitely. Well, what is what is a huge industry of Marin even look like? Um, if we want to be as big as the the rock lobster industry and compete in this ten billion dollar global rock lobster market, um, what does that what does that want to look like? So we sort of looked at each other and said, okay, let's just imagine for a second that we're going to grow a billion dollars worth of Marin a year out in the middle of the desert. Um, well, what would need to be true for that to even be possible? Um, and so that's kind of where we started and we spoke to a lot of farmers and a lot of scientists at that point to try and understand what the underlying assumptions would need to be for that to even be possible. Um, and a lot of the key ones were, well, what are they going to eat? Like uh, if you're going to grow them intensively, we don't really have a great understanding of what, what marin eat. Um, and so we do know that they're very low trophic level, which means they're very low in the food chain, which is great for an energy consumption conversion from you know, photosynthesis all the way through to the final product. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got very good food conversion ratios compared to a lot of the other proteins that people are trying to grow. Uh, they're cold-blooded. Um, we suspect direct feeding of marin um, will be higher when you don't have you know sun-powering life in the, 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 the ponds. Uh, but in general, it's, it's a really efficient way of growing protein. So, so where we started was, okay, well, let's just see if we can grow marin in this uh, in this environment that we're planning to scale up and see if that's possible. As you say, we've been doing that for several months now and we are successfully growing marin. So at this point, it's, okay, now let's turn from the underlying assumptions to how do we engineer for scale. And early on, we kind of read a lot of nutritional research and on so many occasions the conclusion of these reports were like oh yeah so the the marin grew all right but you wouldn't believe how big this marin was that escaped and we found in the sump tank and we're like <laughs> we're chatting to each other and thinking did they figure out what the that it was eating in the sump tank and would turn the page but the report was done and this just kept happening so we took this to our team of scientists and we've been trying to figure out why those escapee marin grow so large and how we can replicate their um, their growth rates in our system. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, I think who's on our team is is as much of a curiosity as what the work is that we're doing um, to some of the people who've been involved in this industry for a long time. So uh, as Michael said, yeah, that's you often see two ponds next to each other, same treatment, same same feed, same number of marin, but one pond produces twice as much growth as the one next to it. And then our follow-up questions always. So, what was the difference? And and there was very seldom an, a deep understanding of what that answer is. Um, and yeah, a lot of the papers would have interesting things, interesting anecdotes. But there was no one on that team who then was able to go and take it one step further. Mm. So that's why we've got um, you know Belinda, a microbiologist, able to go a, a lot deeper into well, what's happening um, at a at a micro level in these environments. You still would expect some healthy scepticism, though, I'd imagine, about using robotics and AI to farm marin intensively from from farmers. And, Michael, you mentioned that you've spoken to a lot of them. What's been their response? Well, their immediate requests when they hear robotics is, can you help me automate X or Y with our current ponds? And, you know, look, we'd love to, but the reality is um, it might help grow output by 10 or 20%. But what we're really looking at with aquatic AI is a step change for the industry. 
Yeah, and there has been a lot of skepticism, but we don't take it to heart. It all has yeah, elements of truth that we try to learn from. The majority of farmers have plenty of questions and we love answering them and we've learned a lot so much from them so far. They've been very supportive. Marin is so supply constrained and growing the industry benefits everyone, so we really don't see each other as competitors. Well, it also hasn't been a great propagator of tech. Has it purely because, um, as we mentioned, the the it's been running alongside other farming operations, so there hasn't been much technology used in the ponds outdoors. Yeah, and when you've got one or two ponds, it just doesn't make sense to kind of get a robot that's going to be sitting there most of the time idle. You kind of need to have enough produce behind it to keep that sort of capital busy to you know make the to investment make that. sense mm. yeah and the, the entire industry just hasn't been big enough to justify that kind of um s- step change in technology for the existing farm so when you talk about an industry that's you know a few million dollars uh, a year total it's not going to attract the kind of major investment um just to improve the operation as it is today um certainly when we when we come along and say hey what we want to do is grow a you know 10,000 tons of marin in the middle of the desert in a warehouse you know <laughs> we, we get raised eyebrows <laughs> i can imagine were well, you talking about major investment there so what role does agrifutures australia play in your project and who are your other collaborators i believe you've been doing work for a while now with the university of western australia uwa yeah well agrifutures really sparked and later accelerated this entire business They have an area of focus called Emerging Industries, which covers sectors of agriculture, which have a current turnover of $1 to $10 million a year, so still kind of fledgling industries. They're things like sheep's milk, hemp seed, seaweed, and marin. One of their KPIs is to grow these industries into over $10 million of turnover at a rate of one per year. And how they're tackling this is very progressive. Over the years, I've commissioned reports ranking the growth potential of these emerging industries and, and Marin has ranked very highly in those reports. This was the main reason I joined Andrew early on in this business. We were discussing Marin's potential at our favourite breakfast spot and we were wondering why can't it be as large as the WA Rock Lobster? And this goal that they had, the AgriFutures had of $10 million why, of turnover, why couldn't we just you know, blow that out of the water? Yeah, so we bounced this idea off, like Andrew said, a bunch of farmers and scientists and they just never gave us a good reason to stop there was a few challenges we'd find along the way but no no real roadblocks after we'd been discussing this for a while agrifutures had an open call for their grant program so the short story is we went back to them saying look this is your idea we think we have a solid strategy to grow the the industry can you please have some grant money This started a lengthy contract negotiation. Now, AgriFutures is using this agreement as a template for other similar businesses. So we really broke the ice um, in that respect. As you point out, Judy, when we start talking about this billion-dollar-a-year Marin industry, Marin facility, that's that's huge amounts of investment. So so when we start talking to, and and we did before we um, spoke a lot with the guys at AgriFutures, when we speak to venture capitalists or people who have that access to that sort of capital and we hadn't really done anything except some background research and try and understand where the opportunities were. And growing Marin in a garage. And, and we're growing Marin in a garage. You can imagine the sort of, wait, so we're going to have to put in how many millions of dollars to try this out? Um, you guys need to go away and prove that it's possible first. 
So it's only through the involvement of AgriFutures and alongside them, University of Western Australia, sort of saying, hey, look, we'll help fund the early stages of this when what you need to do is reduce the scientific uncertainty so that you can prove that it's possible, show how you're going to do it. You don't necessarily have everything figured out for how to scale it up, but you have a plan in place and some proof. And then we're able to come to kind of come back to investors now and say, hey, look, here's our data so far. Here's the growth rates. Here's how we plan to do this. Plus, look, we've got the support of the industry. We've got the support of AgriFutures and the university sector. Um, and so through that collaboration, we now have everything in place to take the next step for the business. So I think AgriFutures has really helped set us up for success going forward. I mean, and further to that support from AgriFutures, we're currently looking to raise capital and they've been very helpful. For one, organising this chat today and we've been bouncing around the idea of how they could get involved and you know, possibly chip in for the next round of seed funding. It also goes beyond funding. We now have Olivia Reynolds at um, AgriFutures helping us and she's been incredible, grilling us on the technical aspects to make sure we put the best foot forward. And in terms of collaborators outside of AgriFutures, so many people in Perth just love Marin. We've been inundated with conversations over breakfast or a beer. So that's one end of the spectrum, very casual. At the other end of the spectrum is the you know, contract we have with UWA to help refine the underlying science that Andrew talked about um, of what they eat. And this has given us access to the leading biologists, ecologists, mathematicians, and data scientists. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> some of those informal uh, advisors uh, have been very helpful as well, so I wouldn't want to want to leave out you know, Brett O'Brien, Craig Lawrence, Ravi Fodada, uh, all these guys who have really been quite generous with their time with us to help help us understand some of the technical aspects. So, what's your message to potential investment partners? Where would you target funding once you have it? Are you looking at developing your operating module? Would you be investing in more equipment or more people? Uh, so. I'd say to potential investors or people that want to come along on this journey that this is uh, not a business that's interested in incremental change. We really are interested in being part of the the challenge of feeding 10 billion people. Um, We just want to do it with a a bit of delicious style. So um, when we talk on, we're taking on as our first uh, as our first produce an iconic sustainable food in the Marin and we want to make it a globally scalable business using cutting edge technology and one of the important aspects of it is that because we're not interested in incremental change we're really building up the foundations from the underlying scientific proof that this is a, a legitimate way of growing these animals um, followed by then engineering for scale uh, so at this point where we've proved a lot of the underlying premises is possible um, and thanks again to the support from AgriFutures and University of Western Australia. We now know it's possible and we've got some funding in place to continue with that underlying biological and nutritional science for the next 18 months. Um, but now that we understand it's possible, we want to start to bring the vision to life and to do that, we're going to need to recruit an engineering and software team uh, to really build and design for massive scale. So this capital is not going to go into building an enormous facility. It's really going to go into that high-tech engineering and software capacity so that we can go from the lab to a scale-ready engineered design. And then where would you like to see Aquatics AI in six to 12 months' time? 
I think in uh, where we'd like to get to over the next six months is to go from a very science-based, nutrition-based team to the envy of the agriculture world in terms of tech. Um, so uh, I've already had the experience of growing a software startup from from scratch to building a, an international team and then reaching an, an exit for that company. Mike was already grown a robotics team and has an extensive experience in automation and, and, and robotics. And so we want to build up that team so that we can actually put together this high-tech operation. Um, and you should see the, the data to continue to come through from our existing lab experiments and together that underlying data of what the growth rate is going to be in that environment together with uh, working towards a scalable modular design so that we're going to be able to really excite investors for the follow-up rounds where we build those scaled operations. That was Michael Storey and Andrew Walker, the co-founders of Aquatic AI, speaking with our GrowAg contributor, Judy Kennedy. You can learn more about Aquatic AI and other investment opportunities by heading to growag.com. And don't forget the Evocag 2023 event will be held on the 21st and 22nd of February 2023 in Adelaide, South Australia. If you're interested in joining us at the two-day full-scale global event or partnering, visit evocag.com for more details. Thanks for listening today. My name is Steve Honor, and until next time, have a great day.